Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm here at Broadcast Central. Been here for about six weeks. I don't know how long we're going to have to stay here before we can get back out on the road. Kind of getting a bit itchy to be able to do that. Love to have an opportunity to gather a group of people together and be able to speak to them about the prophetic significance of what's going on comparing current events with the Bible's scenario that's laid out for the end times. Well, we'll do what we have to do and hoping it's going to be soon when we'll be able to stand face to face with you and teach the prophetic word of God. But thank you for joining us here for this 90 minutes of information from my broadcast partners around the world who are helping us to understand current events, giving us the details behind the news headlines, giving us information that helps us to realize the urgency of the moment as we compare current events with the Word of God. We're going to open up. Our first broadcast partner is in southern France, and Ken Timmerman is the man who covers geopolitical activities for us. Ken, just a quick word about your latest book, the one on the elections upcoming. Uh, where can they get it, and uh, how is it going to be put out? I mean, is it ready right now for distribution? Yes, you can pre-order the book, and it's really important to pre-order it. It's called The Election Heist, and it's about the stealing of the 2020 election, how that's going to happen. It's an entertainment, so it's, uh, it's meant to entertain you. You will find it fun to read, but it's full of real information about what's going on with our electronic voting machines. Go to my website, KenTimmerman.com. You'll find a link that takes you directly to the Amazon page, or just search my name and The Election Heist on Amazon, and you'll find it pretty soon. It's easy to pre-order, and it really helps because it lets the publisher know how big a print run to do uh, when the book comes out finally in August. Uh, Let the exhortation go forth. Do a pre-order of Ken's brand new book. Well, let's get to the issues at hand. A little bit of saber-rattling going on in the Persian Gulf, and because of that, President Trump gave a direct order to the United States Navy destroy Iranian ships if they harass the United States there in the Persian Gulf. Give us the latest on that. Well, it's a pretty interesting situation. The the Navy sailors took a video of this recent encounter with something like a dozen Iranian fast attack boats. These are big boats. They're like cigarette boats, and they've got a 50 caliber machine gun mounted on the bow. So they are not just out there cruising in the sunshine in the Persian Gulf or the Strait of Hormuz. And they came within about 10 yards off the bow of one of our ships. I mean, 10 yards, that's a first down, right? <laughs> We're a first down away from one of our ships of the Persian Gulf, and enough is enough. The president said, look, they better cut that out or we're going to sink them and sink them fast. The reason this is so dangerous, Jimmy, is because the Iranians are practicing what they call a swarming attack, where they will circle our ships with 10, 15, 20 of these fast attack boats, and we'll think they're just playing, we'll think they're just uh, kind of thumbing their noses at us, and then all of a sudden the last one peels off, uh, loaded with explosives, and runs into the ship. This is a, a little bit what happened to the USS Cole in the year 2000 in Aden, and that's what our Navy's really worried about, that these swarming attacks, because they are so close off the bows of our ships, could really be a warm-up run, if you wish, for an actual attack uh, with a boat laden with explosives. 
And at the same time, the Iranians responding to the order by President Trump to the United States Navy. Iran said that uh, U.S. warships are going to be destroyed if they mess with the Iranians in the Persian Gulf. I mean, is that bravado or can they really make a, a powerful impact on the U.S. Navy in the Persian Gulf? Well, they can sink one of our ships for sure. They can do it. But just watch out what happens afterwards. <laughs> because there won't be much of the Iranian Navy left to uh, play around with us any longer. Uh, look, I think it is bravado. They have to respond somehow. You know, they've got the honor of the IRGC, quote-unquote, whatever it is, to defend. But they all know that if the United States decides to really get tough with them, there's not going to be an Iranian Navy left. Ken, we've talked before about what's going on in Libya. There's a big, major battle uh, between the two factions, basically a United Nations-backed government and General Haftar, who I think you may have met in the past. I'm not sure, but you can let us know that. But uh, there's been some secret relationships going on between Libya's General Haftar and Israel. What can you tell us about that? Well, it, this is a story that's been around for some time. I'm not 100% sure of how accurate it is, but it certainly makes a lot of sense for the Israelis to reach out to General Haftar because they have a very strong interest in what's happening in Libya because of the oil and the gas off Israel's coast, the Leviathan and Tamar oil and gas fields. These are absolutely gigantic oil and gas resources. Israel has long-term supply arrangements uh, with Egypt, and I believe with Jordan as well. The Leviathan field, which is run by Nobel Industries in the United States, with Israeli partners, went on stream in December of 2019. So it's, they're actually pumping oil. And the Turks, here's where it gets to Haftar, the Turks have said they are going to claim all of the uh, channel between Turkey, Cyprus, and Libya as sovereign Turkish territorial waters. Now, this is completely illegal, but uh, they are saying they're going to do that. And the reason they're going to do that is to prevent Israel from building a gas pipeline to ship gas to Europe. That's what this is all about. So if the Israelis have military ties with Haftar, which they may, the strategic reason behind it is to defend their ability to build this gas pipeline primarily to Europe from the Israeli offshore fields. It's interesting at this same time, the oil prices have hit an all-time low. I mean, historic low as it relates to prices. Is this a battle actually between Russia and Saudi Arabia trying to flood the market? Absolutely. And, and both the Saudis and the Russians produce oil at ridiculously low prices, so they're still making money with their oil. Our shale producers are not. Shale in the United States costs around 30 to $35 a barrel to extract, and that's not including the shipping or the transport costs afterwards. So our shale oil is much, much more expensive. And, uh, you know, it's, it's ironic, Jimmy, to see first we have the coronavirus that hits us from China. And then you have these Russia-China ties that we've been talking about on this program, a strategic relationship between Russia and China getting stronger by the day. The two leaders, President Xi of China and President Putin of Russia, talking regularly by phone, meeting regularly as well. And so first the coronavirus from China, and then the second shoe drops 
which is the Russian price war with the United States in tandem with the Saudis. Now, the one thing I don't understand about this is why President Trump has not gotten on the phone, and maybe he has, but why he hasn't been on the phone day in and day out with the Saudis to say, cut it out. You know, you're wrecking our economy along with the uh, coronavirus, because this is having a devastating impact on the oil patch in the United States. There are millions of jobs in America that depend uh, on oil. We, are, we were the largest producer in the world until this crisis dropped prices down to below $20 a barrel, and it's going to hurt our economy uh, very, very seriously. Is this then an effort? And in partnership, Russia and China trying to destroy the economy of the United States? Well, he would be the third shoe to drop, Jimmy, and that would tell you if that's what we're looking at. If the Russians and the Chinese bring out this new gold-backed currency that they've been talking about for a number of years quietly behind the scenes, but there has been some, some public uh, statements about it, if they bring out a new gold-backed currency to challenge the U.S. dollar, then you can be sure this is all part of a strategic plan by the Russians and the Chinese to wreck the U.S. economy and wreck us as a superpower without firing a shot. Yes, without firing a shot. And this scenario basically is what Bible prophecy really calls for, the major players, Russia and China, and the United States not even mentioned in Bible prophecy. Well, let's uh, go to the Middle East real quickly. Hezbollah is determined to be the most heavily armed non-state actor that there is in the world. Somebody has said they are as armed as the fifth largest military site in the entire world. What are your thoughts? Well, that's entirely possible. You know, the United States, uh, China, Russia, Turkey, now, they don't have a modern air force. They do not have a navy, uh, as the Saudis do and, and other countries do, as Israel does. So I don't know if they're number five. They might be number 20 or something like that. But they have an extraordinary arsenal, which they have no need for except for one thing, only one purpose, which is to hit Israel. They have 150,000 uh, surface-to-surface missiles that are aimed at Israel. This is a, is a deadly arsenal. The Israelis saw it in 2006. I was there on the ground in 2006 and saw it in northern Israel and southern Lebanon. And now they've got you know, at least five times the arsenal that they had then. Uh, they've improved the accuracy of those missiles. They also, and this is more dangerous, they also have anti-shipping missiles, which they've gotten from the Iranians, from, uh, originally from China. These are C-802 missiles, which they use. Used in 2006, they actually targeted and killed an Israeli navette, a, a patrol boat, a fast patrol boat, uh, in the 2006 war with one of these. So Hezbollah has a huge arsenal. It is aimed at Israel, and Hassan Nasrallah, who is Iran's puppet in Hezbollah, controlling Hezbollah, he's got his finger on the trigger. And that is key information from the man who covers the geopolitical activities around this world for us here at Prophecy Today, Ken Timmerman. You're not going to hear these types of reports any other place in the world other than right here at Prophecy Today. So therefore, Ken, thank you so very much for an excellent report. We so appreciate what you're doing, and we'll have another conversation next week with you. Stay well, my good friend. I'm doing my best, Jimmy, in involuntary confinement in France. God bless. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, more information coming out of the Middle East from David Dolan. It's his Middle East News Update, all ahead right here on Prophecy Today.
Prophecy Today is heard all across the USA on the Prophecy Today radio network, but also it is heard around the world through our website at prophecytoday.com. And Jay, there are many other features on our prophecytoday.com website, like daily news updated out of the Middle East as it pertains to what's happening prophetically. Special reports can be heard right on our website at prophecytoday.com. We have Prophecy Q&A available for you. Questions asked in the past can be answered on the website if you just check it out and go to that particular spot. Prophecy Quiz is available, and parts of our Prophecy Today program, if you should miss any part of it, will be heard the next week right here at prophecytoday.com. And don't forget, you can even email your questions to us for our live radio broadcast. Just go to our website at prophecytoday.com. You'll be amazed, you'll be surprised at what you'll find on our website. Be sure to visit us at prophecytoday.com on the World Wide Web. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. It's time for our Middle East news update, and we go to the man who covers the Middle East for us. In fact, he's been doing that for over 35 years. His name is David Dolan. He's an author. He's a world traveler, in essence, and also a journalist covering the Middle East for all of those years, which gives him great insight into what is happening in that unique region of the world key to our understanding of the prophetic scenario that is found in Bible prophecy. And David, you're covering this week an event that is, of course, part of the prophetic end-time events that will unfold. That would be the reestablishment of a Jewish state called Israel, 72nd birthday upcoming this week on Wednesday. Just talk to me about the uniqueness of this in fact, Bible prophecy fulfillment, but in addition to that, the reality of the Jewish state of Israel being a nation among the nations once again. Well, Jimmy, that's a great topic, one I love to speak about. You know as well as I do that pretty much every prophet in the Bible, uh, certainly uh, most of them, spoke about the Jews uh, returning to their land after being exiled, after being punished by God. That's in Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, on and on, uh, prophesied by Moses, uh, actually, first, uh, that the Jews would be scattered from their land due to sin, and then in the end times would be regathered, actually twice regathered, Isaiah says, and that has happened. First, uh, of course, after the Babylonian Assyrian dispersions, the Jews came back, rebuilt the temple. We have that in Ezra and Nehemiah. 
Then, of course, the Romans, a few centuries later, came in, destroyed the city and the temple, scattered the Jews once again this time, as the prophet said, to the literal four corners of the earth, Jews in New Zealand, where I've spoken in synagogues, in Australia, in South Africa, and the farthest reaches South America, North America, from Israel. But, uh, as you said, about a 100 years ago, the Jews started to return in significant numbers, and just over 70 years ago, in 1948, the state of Israel declared, after, of course, the horrendous holocaust of World War II and the other terrible things that happened in that era, and they're back. There's over 8 million Jews living there now. More than were killed in the holocaust, and they're surrounded by enemies, as we talk about all the time. But they are strong, they have a strong military, and of course they remember on Tuesday evening, Memorial Day begins, the fallen soldiers, over 20,000 soldiers have fallen in uh, wars and in terror attacks and other conflicts over the years, but they remember them and then switch on Wednesday evening at sundown to celebrations of the fact that there is a Jewish state uh, born through the blood of those soldiers and others, but a strong state that stands tall in the world despite a lot of opposition to it. It's not going to be a normal independence day in Israel because of the coronavirus pandemic, but uh, they're still going to be celebrating if they have to do it individually there in their own homes, will they not? Well, they will, Jimmy, and the people were reminded of why this is necessary uh, by a story that appeared this week in the town of Netivot, that's in southern Israel. Two different families held Passover meals, Passover seders, where they invited outside guests from other places, one from Ashkelon, and uh, that was against the rules. You weren't supposed to do that. Well, as a result, within a week, 60 new coronavirus cases uh, appeared in that town, and it's now sealed off. The whole town is because it's spreading further. And the same in the town of Beit Shemesh near Jerusalem on the road up to Jerusalem. There again, some uh, Orthodox families invited in uh, some guests, and suddenly the virus is back in full swing in those two areas. So it's also being quarantined. So people are being asked to stay home or close to their homes for Independence Day, Memorial Day. They usually just watch on television anyway, the official state ceremony at Har Herzl, Mount Herzl in Jerusalem, remembering the soldiers. There's always some sort of a ceremony that will take place uh, with very few people there, of course, no crowds there as usual. And then Wednesday night, the beginning of Independence Day, and Thursday, when people would normally pack the parks and the beaches and all of that, the government is saying you can, of course, celebrate, can go out, but just do it with caution, keep distance, because we need to get this thing under control. And it is under control, basically, in Israel, but they want to see it reduced, and they've had, in recent days, a few spikes. Earlier this week, an amazing event did take place. The fact was that there was a unity government that was formed between Benjamin Netanyahu, the caretaker prime minister, and the head of the Blue-White Party, and that was Benny Gantz. However, the Palestinians are decrying this Netanyahu-Gantz deal, and they warn that if this deal is laid out so that they can annex Judea and Samaria and the Jordan Valley area, all peace deals are off the table, and in fact, they'll negate any peace agreement like the Oslo Accords. 
I mean, there wasn't really peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians anyway, but the unity government is key. No, actually, there's been tremendous cooperation on the virus between the two governments, the PA authority and the Israeli government, the health ministries in both in particular. But that's just an exception. That's just a short blip. We also had a video air just a couple weeks ago on state, Palestinian state-sponsored TV, calling for the uh, liberation of Al-Aqsa, the Temple Mount, calling for Jewish blood to be spilled up there, the same sort of thing that we always hear. So, yes, this 14-page agreement that Netanyahu signed with Benny Gantz on Monday does give them the opportunity to annex uh, parts of Judea and Samaria, at least the West Bank, that the United States would agree to. And according to the deal, as of July 1st, Netanyahu can bring a decision to annex that land to a cabinet to vote. If it fails in the cabinet, it can then go to the Knesset where it would pass. Now, why would it fail inside of the government? Because a lot of uh, Gantz's blue and white members are already stating they're going to vote against it. They're left of center politically. They don't want any trouble with the European Union, which this week refreshed its condemnation of the possibility that Israel would annex some more land and other places around the world echoing that. So uh, that's the deal, but it would pass in the Knesset because some parties that are staying outside of the government, Lieberman's in particular, Avigdor Lieberman's uh, Russian-based party, would support it in the Knesset. So that's the situation. But, Jimmy, there's a controversy over the fact that over 50 members of the Knesset are going to be drafted into the new government as either ministers or deputy ministers. That's double the number that are in the current Netanyahu government. And that's because, of course, uh, Blue and White is demanding all sorts of portfolios, so they're making some new ones up. It's rather ridiculous, and it's costing millions of shekels, well, hundreds of millions of shekels in additional spending in Israel, so there's a lot of opposition to that. But that's what they had to do to get this unity government going, and it does look like it's going to be uh, solidly formed and last at least uh, for a while. At least for a while, they're saying three years. We'll see if that does happen. Uh, meanwhile, there is a group uh, there in Judea and Samaria, the Jewish settlers or the Jewish communities out there, who are saying okay to annexation, but forget about the Trump peace plan. We didn't ever think that was going to fly anyway, did we, David? Well, no, and again, it's it's really unlikely that there's going to be too much uh, activity until the situation overall returns to a more normal state. We still have Iran out there. We had the tensions this week flare between the U.S. and Iran with President Trump. We've had some other activities in Lebanon and Yemen and some other signs that that conflict is still boiling. So peace with the Palestinians, not high on the agenda. They just seem to want the prime minister, at least, and his party to annex as much of Judea and Samaria as they can unilaterally do without the U.S. stepping in and opposing it, uh, knowing that the rest of the world won't support any of it, knowing that the Palestinians will condemn it, and knowing that the Palestinians still want, as I just mentioned, to wipe the Jewish state out, to get them off of the Temple Mount and, you know, set up an independent Palestinian Islamic state in its place. That's what they want, and uh, that will remain their goal. And that particular conflict, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it looks as if even during this time of the coronavirus pandemic, 
It's continuing on. Next time David and I get together, we'll talk about how that is the case, and it's going to be the case according to the little book of Obadiah until the Messiah, Jesus Christ, comes back. Uh, That would be for the Christian, the second coming of Jesus Christ. David, thank you so very much. Great report. Appreciate you being able to give us this report. We need to have this information because it helps us to understand how the prophetic scenario found in God's Word is coming better into focus. Thank you so much. Stay well, my friend. We'll talk to you again next week. Glad to be able to do it, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Winky Madad will come Mike's side with us. He's going to give us a bit more information about the election results. And then we're going to talk about the Holocaust. They actually started commemorating the Holocaust activities and honoring the six million back in 1949. That's all ahead when I have a conversation with Winky Madad on Prophecy Today. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung here at Broadcast Central. I've been saying that for about four weeks, maybe five weeks. I don't remember how long we've actually been here at home trying to fight off the coronavirus possibilities for Judy and myself. We got a hold of Winky Madad. He and his precious wife are being protected from the attack from coronavirus as well because we're obeying our governments and staying out of the mainstream of everyday life not being able to come in contact with that, which may give us older guys uh, some type of a situation relating to the coronavirus. Well, we're glad that we can have a conversation. Going to talk with Winky Madad, our broadcast partner, about two different situations. One, the Israeli elections. It's been formed. And then I want to talk about Holocaust Remembrance Day taking place earlier this week. Winky, let's talk about the elections. It's an amazing feat. After 17 months and three elections, it looks like they have formed an Israeli government. What can you tell us about it? What's the deal? And uh, are they going to be able to make it happen for the next three years? Well, Jimmy, just to review the basics, as you said, we have been three times in an election cycle. Each time, None of the two major parties, blue and white, from center to center left, and the Likud on the right were unable to achieve a 61 majority support in the Knesset, our parliament. 
What happened now was that Mr. Gantz, who's the head of the Blue and White, decided to join up and with Mr. Netanyahu and make a, I guess you can call it a national emergency government, and everything seems to be working out. On the way, he broke up his own party, so that out of something like 33, he now only has 15. But the situation is, as I speak to you, that a coalition agreement has been signed. There's still about two weeks of negotiations until it is presented before the Knesset in order to gain a 61-member majority. So there's something to be optimistic about. I know one of the bumps in the road in forming this coalition government was the annexation of Judea and Samaria, sometimes referred to as the West Bank, but biblically, Judea and Samaria. Is that going to be able to take place or not? It's in the agreement as far as I know. I'm not quite sure whether it will be in two stages. People have talked earlier, and especially that is in the Trump peace plan, if you remember, that Area C, what's called Area C, which is basically where most of the Jewish communities are, uh, could be eventually annexed, or Israeli sovereignty would be extended to those areas. It might be in two stages. I'm trying to warn you, uh, and trying, as we joke around, I'm not a prophet, trying to see what could happen. In the first stage, the Jewish communities would be granted recognition as sovereign Israel, and then a major move maybe later on to include territories which also would include Arab villages, not that many, to be sure, in Area C, in a second stage move. Winky is another top story there in Israel for this week. It's Holocaust Remembrance Day. Earlier in the week, this took place. Let me take a few moments and chat with you about the Holocaust in the past, presently, and the possibility of another Holocaust in the future. I understand from my study of history that the first Holocaust was December in 1949, the year after independence was announced. But why was this special day put in place back then? Well, Jimmy, over 200,000 survivors, what we call in a biblical sense the remnant of Israel, that survived the camps and the Holocaust had come to Israel. Many of them were broken, spiritually, physically, psychologically. And after two or three years, it became apparent to many people who were dealing with issues either from politics to mental health, etc., that the country should find some way to make this an established event and they called it, in Hebrew, the Day of Heroism and Holocaust. And so we put together the two elements that people were heroic enough to survive, even if they had to live in forests or children in, in monasteries or people who ran away to the partisans and fought, were simply existing in the concentration camps. And so the country thought, and don't forget, Jimmy, Uh, Jews have a very long memory. Most of our holidays are built on memory of events that happened 3,000 years ago. It's not too difficult to say we have to remember what happened between 1933 and 1945 when the Nazis came to power uh, with racial laws and all sorts of the beginnings of concentration camps, and then, of course, the Holocaust and the crematory itself. 
So the wise people at the helm of the government said, let us have a day in which we honor and recall and, uh, and memorialize what happened during that time. So that particular day has been going on now for 71 years. However, this year, and I've been when I was living there full-time in Jerusalem to these Holocaust Remembrance Day operations or observances there at Yad Vashem when a crowd was gathered to honor those 6 million that were killed, but a virtual presentation on the Internet, something very different this year. Well, Jimmy, circumstances have forced everybody to be not only distancing themselves socially, but sports and malls, everything has been shut down here, Jimmy, where masses of people get together. And so this week's Holocaust Memorial, indeed, didn't have more than three or four people on the screen at the same time. Messages, both from Mr. Netanyahu and the president, were recorded and beamed, and everybody simply sat at home and, and listened. And then, of course, as you probably recall, throughout the evening and the next day, films, interviews, and programs all dedicated to various aspects of the Holocaust and, and the survivors is broadcast uh, almost around the clock. I know normally throughout each and every year, there are students and members of the Israeli Defense Force serving soldiers that go to Yad Vashem uh, to go through a time of remembering the Holocaust and what did take place. Has that been going on because of the coronavirus? But it is something that's going to continue after this coronavirus pandemic has gone away, is it not? Yes, of course, Jimmy. There's special circumstances now, and so there's a quite a lot of restrictions and limitations. And I can tell you that probably next week, when the memorial for the fallen of Israel on the eve or the day before our Independence Day, there's probably going to be another shutdown so that the masses don't go out to the cemeteries and again mingle unnecessarily or too early before we have completely vanquished this coronavirus so that again there'll be a Extreme limitation on movement in Israel. We hope for the health of everybody, and next year, things will be better. Yes, we're praying that case is going to be what does happen. Talk to me about these events. They take place so that Jews will not forget what happened, and this is essential in the body politic of the Jewish people, the society of the Israelis today, isn't it? Yes, Jimmy, we have a very unique uh, custom here, though I think it is being copied uh, slowly in some other countries. At a specific hour, our air raid, in a certain sense, the sirens used for the air raids with, with a different type of uh, sound are blasted all across the country, and everything comes to a halt, and people stop for two minutes. The whole country literally stops. Uh, you've probably witnessed it, cars on the highways, pedestrians on the sidewalks, everything stops for the two minutes. And uh, usually, there, as, as you said, we have ceremonies either at Yad Vashem or at the cemeteries in honor of the fallen. We take this very seriously. There are programs in the schools. Every single school will have a program in their yard. Again, not this year, next year. And we try to highlight issues like non-Jews saving Jews, Jews saving Jews, 
unique aspects of partisan warfare, all sorts of elements about what happened during those years is always part of the educational curriculum. And again, as I mentioned before, very heavily uh, viewing on the television of all sorts of programs, people's personal history, how they escaped, what they did. And it is uh, a mark of Israel's commitment to the history of our people that will allow us to continue to be in the future the Jewish people in its homeland. And all of these events for the purpose of helping the Jew to be able to stand strong in their statement, never again. However, Winky, with the possibility of the enemies surrounding the Jewish state of Israel today, can you really say never again? Does it look like the possibility these enemies could ultimately attack? And as the psalmist said, Psalm 83, verse 4, to try to wipe Israel off the face of the earth another time. We take in Israel very, very seriously and realistically the threats that either come from Iran, Hezbollah, or other nations uh, or organizations that think it is their uh, right to do us harm. We are in a totally different situation here as a state with its own military, remarkable air force, intelligence, Mossad, tank force, paratroopers, and Golani infantrymen. It's a totally different situation, and I feel confident that despite the threats, any talk of a Holocaust or a major conflagration of this stature would not be probable. The last time, and I remember it quite well, was on the beginning of the Yom Kippur War. But again, Israel showed its might, showed its, its ability to overcome. And I think we've made vast improvements technologically and militarily since then. And I would think that any talk of a second Holocaust is not on the agenda. And I've read the last chapter of the Word of God. We do know that God will protect His chosen people, the Jewish people. He has an eternal plan for them. That's an absolute. Uh, that uh, Davidic covenant, Second uh, Samuel chapter 7, gives us all of that information and promise. Winky, thank you so very much for being able to take a moment with me and share about the Holocaust, the activities of Remembrance Day, and, of course, my conversation with you about the elections and the formation of a brand-new coalition government, finally, after 17 months and some three elections. Appreciate it, my good friend. Stay safe, stay well. We'll talk again real soon. Jimmy, again, thank you very much for having me on the program. Goodbye to you and our listeners. Well, let's now go to another region of the world that is key in our understanding of prophetic events according to the scenario that is found in God's Word. That region would be the European Union, the man who covers that for us, John Rood. He lived in Brussels for over 30 years. He knows that region very well. He knows the European Union. And John, because of that, let me ask you this major question. This was a big headline. It says that the European Union is dead, but they don't know it yet. What do you think about that headline? Yes, a prominent think tank has come out with the truth that there really is no union in the European Union, and it's, a, it's essentially dead. In Brussels, I would always like to attend uh, think tank conferences and so forth, and there's a lot of insight. There's a lot of analysis. 
We have the EU single market, you know, which came online in 1993. All of Europe was based on the free movement of people, goods, and services. Now with the coronavirus situation, we see that every nation, uh, not surprisingly, has made unilateral decisions for their own interests. Spain and Italy have had a hit particularly hard, even had situation where France had seized uh, some of the masks that were supposed to go to them. The free movement of goods is, has been questioned. The free movement of people, when Italy and Greece were overwhelmed by migrants, uh, the EU refused to do their share, the other countries. We have the Euro introduction, of course, a big event in 1999. It was all touted to us that this was going to make all of our international uh, payments easier. It ended up being more expensive. Nothing had changed, even caused inflation. We have the same pressures now. The United Kingdom is gone. Eastern Europe has been clashing with Brussels now for a long time. And now with the coronavirus stresses, we have Southern Europe, is feeling enormously isolated from Brussels. There's been some really high-level quotes. Uh, Jacques Delors, who was the former commission chief, he's saying Europe is in mortal danger. We have uh, very top leaders all expressing that EU is in an existential crisis right now. In this particular case, as we've all often mentioned, when there's a crisis, you know, the EU is in crisis yet, yes, but it is their opportunity to change towards more super-state initiatives. Sometimes the EU said feels like they almost create their own crisis in order to initiate changes. This one was forced on them, but we can see that the European Union is in an existential crisis, but the plans are on the table for the form that they want this to take. It's already been decided. Now, by saying it's been decided, you mean that they're just going to have this video conference amid all of these coronavirus fears and realizing that the European unity is in bad shape. Uh, they've already decided what they're going to do, and uh, this is just going to be a format? Exactly. This is how the European Union works. It's not a democratic system. The heads of state get together, and they make the decisions that they want to do, and so now we have the European summit that's coming up, as you said, will be uh, conducted by a video call. The Eurozone finance ministers had come up with half a billion euros to, for the economy. Now it's being said that they need uh, one and a half trillion uh, euros to make this work. But what's happened is the news is sort of a testing of the waters. And so the idea of the corona bonds, which would be a mutualization of the European Union debt, would favor the southern countries. And so the northern countries that are more fiscal responsible are not interested in that. So now it's testing the waters, and all these things are, are hitting the news. There'll be some type of new joint financing. There'll be some type of loan, let's not call it a grant. There'll be some type of recovery fund. But the fact is, these will have inflationary effects. And so there will be band-aids that will have to be paid for later. But the EU leaders, they basically are able to get through what they want. Not even all of the voting is equal. The larger countries have uh, votes that weigh more. 
So uh, you can be sure that in this crisis, it's going to be a continuation of every nation for themselves. But the idea will be to, as we've mentioned before, reinvent and strengthen the EU initiatives, which lead to even more super state. You know what's interesting to me, John? Last week we talked about the Pope and some of his comments. He's a religious leader. We know that very well. But he is becoming somewhat of a political spokesman for what he actually and the Vatican would like to see happen. For example, on the eve of this summit you were talking about, he's urging the fractured European Union uh, to find some type of unity and come out of this coronavirus pandemic better than they were before. Is that possible? And what power does the Pope have in making that statement? Exactly. We're seeing the Pope become, uh, Pope Francis is becoming more politically active in the face of the EU summit conference, which is coming up immediately. He's calling for prayers for unity for Europe. And uh, on Easter, he actually gave a speech that warned that the EU was at risk of a collapse if they somehow don't work together. Also, we see that Pope Francis, in a sense, is a, is a spokesman for Rome, for Italy, which has been very hard, hard hit by the coronavirus. So we see that those nations that are affected the most, Italy, Spain particularly, we see that they are facing what we see to be an existential crisis, and the Pope is intervening uh, on behalf of Italy is one way that I would interpret that. Well, we're not absolutely sure the Pope will play a key role in the end-time scenario as it is unfolding after the rapture of the Church. However, we know that Rome, and in particular the Vatican, is going to be a major player, Revelation chapter 17. So we see the political, as we often say, setting the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. John, great report. Thank you so very much. Good insight as to what's going on in the European Union. It's a part of a program the Lord has in place from his prophetic word. Thank you, John. Talk again next week. Yeah, thank you. Great to discuss these insights. Right now, we're going to the man who is our financial advisor. He's been doing that for over 30 years. Ron Morrow is his name, and he is key to our reports, not on a weekly basis necessarily, but when something happens like did happen this week, we've got to go to Ron to understand what's going on. Ron, of course, you know what I'm talking about. Oil prices plummeted 305%, and that's for the first time ever in history. I see that oil prices were a minus $37 a barrel. I think that means when you go into a service station, you fill your tank up with gas, you then have the owner of the service station come out, hand you a $20 bill, and say, thank you very much for filling up from our service station. But why has this happened? What's the deal, Ron? Jimmy, because of the global shutdown caused by the coronavirus, the basic principle of supply and demand has been greatly disrupted. To get a clear picture of this historic price drop in oil, we really have to back up to March 8th. It was then that it became clear to the Saudis that oil demand was plummeting, and Mohammed bin Salman called for emergency production cuts. In response, Russia, showing some muscle, said enough is enough, no more cuts. So Saudi Arabia responded by ramping up production, and when they did so, the world saw a mind-boggling 30% drop in the price of oil overnight. Saudi Arabia should not be underestimated, Jimmy. 
They started a price war in 2014 that drove oil prices into the $20 range, and no other single entity could have done that. I want to ask, Ron, I mean, it seems logical, but is this Russia and Saudi Arabia both trying to flood the, the market and one or the other come out on top of this whole struggle or battle? Yeah, it's no secret that the growth of U.S. shale oil has been a thorn in the side of both Saudi Arabia and Russia. They both have seen their market shares erode as the shale boom made the U.S. the world's largest oil, crude oil producer. OPEC and Russia finally agreed to production cuts on April 10th. Now, according to the Wall Street Journal, Saudi Arabia agreed to cut 3.3 million barrels a day from their current production levels of 12 million barrels per day. Russia agreed to cut 2 million barrels per day from its current production of 10 million barrels per day. But with the U.S. still producing 13 million barrels, analysts stress that strong U.S. production has put a limit on the price gains for oil. And this is where it gets a little tricky. When President Trump has offered to cut production, U.S. antitrust laws prohibit oil companies from coordinating their production. And there's no direct mechanism for the government to dictate production levels to private oil companies. And you know, Jimmy, oil wells can't simply be turned off and on like tap water. It can take weeks to shut down one. It can it costs lots of money to shut one down and even more money to start them up again. And there's a good chance the well could fail. So oil producers have an incentive to keep production flowing, even if they're operating at a loss. And in extreme conditions, uh, they sometimes pay people to take the oil off their hands. Well, I've got to ask you, then, is Russia, and I'm a novice as it relates to the financial world, economics in this world that is so key to the daily operation of it, but is this Russia trying to ultimately destroy U.S. economy with the oil fight that's going on? You know, both Russia and Saudi Arabia would, would like to put an end to the oil shale miracle because it diminished their stranglehold on the world oil market. Uh, Saudi tankers are right now on their way to the U.S. to try to deliver 50 million barrels of oil. And so far, President Trump has not taken action to block the delivery. So, yeah, there's, there's a concerted effort there by both, uh, both entities to get rid of the shale problem as they see it. Explain how then... Uh, what Saudi Arabia and Russia are doing, how could they hurt the United States since we are the number one oil producer in the world? You know, Jimmy, there are over 100 shale producers in the United States. And for them to stay profitable, oil needs to trade at $40 a barrel. When oil dropped to $30 a barrel, only four producers were still profitable. Now, on April 1, the first U.S. shale oil producer filed for bankruptcy. So, yes, the U.S. could be greatly impacted if the global shutdown goes on much longer. On Tuesday, uh, President Trump announced we will never let the great U.S. oil and gas industry down. Sadly, that may make the situation worse. By keeping all the shale oil producers in operation means they'll produce more oil and possibly exacerbate the glut, drive prices even lower. But there's another factor threatening the U.S. ranking right now. It's no secret that during the Democrat debates, the progressive candidates pushed Joe Biden to the far left. Biden is on record as having said no more drilling and no more fracking. After being confronted with the impact of 1.7 million oil workers losing their jobs, Biden flipped on his position on Wednesday saying he would not put these people out of work. But one thing's for sure, Jimmy, Saudi Arabia and Russia know they would do better with a Democrat president. Well, that's how it would hurt the United States, and I understand all of your reasoning there. Great insight for us, Ron, here on Prophecy Today as it relates to the economies of the world. 
but this will also have an impact on Middle East oil producing companies as well. Could it uh, put them into bankruptcy, uh, which would maybe motivate them to get quicker into action against the Jewish state of Israel since they won't have the money to pay for their military operation? You know, the continued disruption in supply and demand will adversely affect the companies of every oil-producing nation, and especially Iran, since uh, exports are its main economic lifeline. You know, maybe this is why there are so many headlines of new Iranian aggression this past week that caused a rise in the oil price from below zero to $17 per barrel on Friday. So we're seeing a lot of geopolitical moves out there, Jimmy, that are affecting this, and, and right now we're back up in the plus column. That's the voice of Ron Murrow. He's our financial advisor here on Prophecy Today. And boy, when these oil prices fell out the bottom, I had to get a hold of Ron and have a conversation with him. Ron, an excellent bit of information you've given us on this report. Appreciate it so much. And once again, when we have to get a hold of you, please be available so we can have a conversation. Thank you and be well, my good friend. Thank you, Jimmy. God bless. Be sure to remember Ron's blog. It's prophecytracker.org. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I have one more broadcast partner. That's David James. We're going to be talking about a Bible translation that leaves out the word Israel. That's replacement theology. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome back to Prophecy Today, reporting to you from Broadcast Central here in Chattanooga, Tennessee, welcoming you to the last 30 minutes of this 90-minute program that gives you the entire world and details into current events that seemingly are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. Have one more broadcaster coming up, David James. We're going to be talking about a translation of the Bible that leaves out the word Israel. That's in the New Testament we're referring to. You don't want to miss that conversation. We'd love for you to answer our poll question. It's located on my website, prophecytoday.com. Go to the home page on the left-hand column. If you'll scroll down, you'll find the question. With the historic drop in oil prices, could this cause Middle Eastern Arab and Islamic nations to move quicker to attack the Jewish state of Israel before these Islamic nations lose their oil wealth, which they will use for munitions and military forces to attack the Jewish state. That's the poll question. Very interesting thought. This could bring forth that alignment of nations very, very quickly instead of later. I want to remind you of my 5- to 10-minute little video on my YouTube channel. It's Prophecy Moment. Go to youtube.com forward slash prophecy today. We now bring to these microphones David James. David and I have a weekly conversation where we look at the Word of God Focus on an issue that may be confronting the body of Christ and put the two together so we will have a better understanding of how to walk biblically very close to the Lord, our daily walk with him. David, before we get to our main topic today, I wanted to mention an email that we received from a listener who is having trouble where he is in this part of the country 
concerning the timing of the rapture. Talk to us about this email and what are your thoughts as it relates to his question. Sure. Well, that email was from a longtime listener who was actually very kind in his opening remarks. He said, I've learned so much from your conversations with David James on items that affect the church body. I'm a faithful follower on your Saturday prophecy program. So that's always an encouragement to us. And he went on to explain why he wrote, saying, what causes me to write to you is an argument that polarizes churches about the rapture being pre-trib or at the seventh trumpet, He said, I've been running headlong into this myself. And he also attached a document with the results of uh, quite a bit of research he's done on the subject, and he wanted to know our opinion. So the sound of a trumpet is mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 4 and in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul talks about the last trumpet. And so some say this is the last trumpet judgment of Revelation. And I would say this can't be the case for several reasons, but I'll just mention and a main one. Jimmy, by the sixth trumpet judgment, half the world's population will have died from war and global catastrophes, and these are due to the wrath of God, but God has promised that the church is not subject to his wrath. And concerning the last trumpet, I would say that one possibility is that the rapture may be announced by a series of trumpet blasts, which is how shofars are used, and the rapture itself will then happen at the last blast of that series. So that's one way of looking at how to understand the last trumpet. Yeah, without going into a much longer and more deep understanding of what we're talking about here, I think that is suffice to give a answer response to our friend who sent the email. And by the way, thank you for those kind remarks that you made to us. We so appreciate hearing from our listeners, and especially when it's complimentary like that. Well, David, this week, the Times of Israel and many other news outlets reported on a new translation of the Bible that seems to omit or at least change almost all the references to Israel in the New Testament. Talk to us about that. Well, that Times of Israel article came out on Tuesday with the headline, uh, Danish Bible Society's Translation Omits Dozens of References to Israel. And the article begins by saying the Danish Bible Society has omitted dozens of references to Israel from translations of the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. And this version was part of a project called Bible 2020 and represents the first translation of the Bible into Danish in over 20 years. And it's called Called the Contemporary Danish Bible 2020, which the Bible Society says is aimed actually at secular readers. And the article also noted that a Danish supporter of Israel had brought attention to this matter, uh, saying that he had counted 60 references to Israel in the New Testament, and this translation had changed 59 of those. Now, when I did a search on Israel in the King James and the New King James versions, I came up with 75 times in 73 verses. But the point remains, references to the people of Israel were replaced with Jews, and the land of Israel became the land of the Jews. And we'll talk about this later, but I think that's significant. And in other places, including the Old Testament, sometimes Israel was translated as to all of those making up humanity. And a Bible Society representative has said that the decision was made to avoid confusing the land of Israel with the modern-day state of Israel. That was an interesting comment they had. 
But when we stop to think about it, David, there are many translations out there, and people are often confused about how to choose a good one. So maybe it would be helpful for us to briefly discuss that issue before we get into the Danish translation. Well, there are two basic translation philosophies that are at opposite ends of a spectrum. One is called formal equivalence, which tries to produce a word-for-word translation, but that isn't always completely possible because there's no one-to-one correspondence between any two languages, even those as close as Spanish and Portuguese. Now, the King James, the New King James, and the New American Standard versions, those would be considered formal equivalence translations, and These are the translations that I prefer and the philosophy that I prefer. Now, the other philosophy is called functional or dynamic equivalence, and it gives a thought-for-thought translation. And the theory is that this makes the text feel the same today to readers today as it did to the original recipients. And the New Living Translation, for example, would fall, I would say, to the far end of the spectrum in that direction and not necessarily a translation that I would recommend. Now, the ESV and the NIV translations would be somewhere in the middle, with the ESV leaning more toward word-for-word and the NIV leaning more toward thought-for-thought. The problem is the more you go toward thought-for-thought, the more the translators are also interpreting the text, sometimes to the point that it can almost be a sort of a commentary, and this can bring in theological bias. And some have said this is what happened with the new Danish translation, and in fact, I received word from a Danish pastor I'm connected with just this morning who confirmed that this is true. This is what happened with that translation. Okay, now we've got that behind us. So let's uh, talk about this Danish translation. Uh, Their translation decision concerning Israel has been very controversial with some seeing it as coming from a theological bias, while the Danish Bible Society, however, has tried to defend itself. You're right. Controversy has erupted over this. Israel, My Glory, which is a great publication by Friends of Israel, came out with a short article on Monday that called the translation decision a blatant act of replacement theology. Then two days later, the Danish Bible Society published an article on its website with the title, Fake News About the New Danish Bible. And they said some news media have been saying that the word Israel and the words Jew and Jewish have been omitted from the translation, and also claim that the reason for this would be political and anti-Semitic, but nothing could be further from the truth. Then they went on to defend their translation by saying that Israel and Israelites do occur more than 2,000 times, and the words Jew and Jewish are found more than 500 times in their new translation. However, that was primarily in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, they use Israel in only one of the 75 times that it occurs. So, their argument is that the Israel of the Bible is not the same as the modern state of Israel. But as the Israel My Glory article points out, the Danish Bible Society is run by the Evangelical Lutheran Church, which does hold strongly to replacement theology, and so they believe this translation was driven by the theology of the Danish Bible Society, which is a Lutheran. David, if the Danish translators almost completely took Israel out of the New Testament, then what did they put in its place? And how would you say there's any reasonable justification for these decisions? 
Well, let me answer the second part of the question first. Uh, I would say, quite simply, there is no justification for taking Israel out of the New Testament. That's fundamentally changing the Word of God. And here's what the Danish pastor I referred to earlier had to say. Oh, and I would also mention he's a dispensationalist, which is rare in Europe. And he said this, it is a dynamic equivalence translation, and most believers see it as a paraphrase rather than a translation. I was very disappointed with the Bible Society's explanation. The only time Israel is used in the New Testament is in Mark 12:29, where Jesus recites the Shema, which is, Hear, O Israel the Lord our God is one Lord. And then he went on to say, the Danish Bible Society is predominantly Lutheran, which is essentially a state church run by political laws rather than biblical teachings, and is led by unbelieving priests, and both the state church and the Bible Society predominantly holds to supersessionism, which is the technical term for replacement theology. Now, in the New Testament, they changed people of Israel to Jews and land of Israel is now land of the Jews, and then they explained this by saying the majority of Danish readers would not know that Israel in the New Testament refers in large part to the people of God with which he has made a covenant. But I would say, Jimmy, that that's precisely the problem, because replacement theology says that Israel is no longer the people of God, and that God's promises and covenants with Israel have been transferred to the church. So this is a genuine problem. David, I think as we wrap it up for today, maybe you could briefly explain replacement theology and why it is a serious problem for the church today. So, as I said, replacement theology is the idea that the church has replaced Israel, and so national Israel has no future place in God's program. Replacement theology is found in Reformed churches, which most would know as Presbyterian, but that view is also held by most Lutherans and really by most mainline denominations. Now, Reformed theologians don't like the term replacement theology because they say there's only ever been one people of God, the Church, which goes back to Adam, and that Israel just represented the Church in the Old Testament. But the the fact remains, this is a serious problem for many reasons. You know, the promises and covenants that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants would have been understood literally by every single person in Israel for hundreds of years. And those promises and conditions were unconditional, and they were eternal. Their fulfillment is dependent only on the faithfulness of God, and failure on Israel's part cannot remove them from God's program. And according to Jeremiah 31, the day is coming when God will change their hearts and restore the nation. That's the new covenant beginning in Jeremiah 31, 31. And Jimmy, it comes down to how we handle the Bible, how we interpret it, the method that we use. It means we need to take the Bible literally rather than spiritualizing things to apply to the church rather than to Israel. This is something that is a problem that is growing in even the evangelical church, and clearly it's happening in churches across the world, and it's affecting even the translations of the Word of God itself. And David, you know what's interesting to me? Many of the Orthodox Jewish scholars in Israel itself recognize this replacement theology. They refer to it as a form of anti-Semitism. Very important discussion we had today. I appreciate all your research and the contacts that you've made through the different avenues you have of communications. And praise the Lord for 
uh, that Danish pastor. May the Lord continue to bless him in his ministry there. David, thanks a lot. We'll have another conversation along a line of a very important issue again next week. Good to be with you again, Jimmy. Thanks so much. I want to remind you of my 5 to 10 minute little video on my YouTube channel. It's Prophecy Moment. Go to youtube.com forward slash prophecy today. We're going to take a break. When we come back, uh, we've talked with many of our broadcast partners. Uh, they have laid out information about current events that seemingly are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. I'm going to take the Bible. We'll take a look at the book and see how that is indeed the case. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of 6 to 10 hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. You know, it's an honor to be on this radio station or internet platform. The honor, of course, is to inform you of current events that seemingly are setting the stage for the prophetic scenario that is found in the Bible. May I suggest you call and tell this radio station or a ministry Thank you for carrying Prophecy Today. These reports are key to each of our understandings of where we are in God's timeline for the time of the end. Our broadcast partners are key in this equation. From all over the world, they bring us these very important reports. By the way, if you missed any of these reports, please go to my website, prophecytoday.com, then go to PTRN, 
Prophecy Today radio network. There you can hear each and every one of the reports. If you missed them, be sure to go to prophecytoday.com, P-T-R-N, and once you've found that location, call and tell a friend. They need to hear the reports as well. Well, today on the broadcast, we heard from Ken Timmerman. He was in southern France, and he reported about President Trump telling the United States Navy to destroy the Iranian speedboats that are harassing U.S. Navy ships in the Persian Gulf. But don't forget, Iran is key to the alignment of nations. When you look at the passages of prophecy that talk about the alignment of nations forming a coalition to destroy the Jewish state of Israel, you'll go to Ezekiel 38, Psalm 83, and Daniel chapter 11. These passages will give you a compilation of Arab and Islamic nations who will form a coalition to destroy the Jewish state. In fact, Psalm 83 verse 4 says they come out of a conference meeting and they will say, let's destroy the Jewish state of Israel, that her name be forgotten forever. Key in that equation as well, Ezekiel 38 and verse 2 mentions Magog, which includes Russia today. David Dolan gives us our Middle East news update each and every week. You know, Israel this week is celebrating their 72nd birthday. The Bible was so explicit when it talked about what the Lord would do in the last days. Have you ever read the book of Ezekiel? Chapter 37, verses 7 to 11, that is the prophecy of the Valley of Dry Bones. And it talks about the bones coming together. That would be the regathering of the Jewish people from across the four corners of the earth. They've been that way scattered for 2,000 years. And then the flesh coming on the bones, that is talking about a restoration of a Jewish state. Now, that happened on May the 14th, and that Friday afternoon, there was only a half hour for David Ben-Gurion to announce to the world that there was going to be a Jewish state among the states or nations of the world. And so, 72 years ago, the establishment of the Jewish state, a fulfillment of Bible prophecy, well, the Bible not only talked about the bones coming together, the flesh coming on the bones, the restoration of that Jewish state, but that the nation would be re-energized and look like a mighty army, and that's what they are today. Ezekiel 34 said it 18 times what he would do with the Jewish people. And the reason he did anything with the Jewish people is that he does have a plan for those Jews, his chosen people, in the future. Winky Madad and I talked about an update on the Israeli elections, the government being formed, Israeli elections key, of course, to the future of the state of Israel. Revelation 17, 17 says God will put into the hearts and minds of political leaders to accomplish his will. Therefore, Israel must have political leadership in place. Well, with the elections coming together, a government formed that will be able to be fulfilled in this time in history. By the way, this week was Holocaust Remembrance Day, 
And Winky brought to our attention the reason for this. It started in December of 1949, and on an annual basis, the Jews will honor the six million Jews that were killed, making the statement, never again. I asked Winky about that phrase, never again. He said, I don't think it'll ever happen again. Well, he must read Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 8 where it says, during the tribulation period, two out of every three Jews will be killed. That would be nine million Jews at the present population of 14.7 million Jews in this world, the worst Holocaust ever to take place. John Rood gave us an update on the European Union, talking about the fact that there are those saying that the European Union is dead. Politically, my dear friends, the European Union may be dead, but Daniel chapter 7 and verse 7 says that old Roman Empire will be revived and come back to power. That's Daniel 7 verse 7. Verse 8 says, and a little horn, that's the Antichrist, will come up out of that revived Roman Empire and rule the world for that seven-year period of time before the Antichrist, Satan, and the false prophet are destroyed. Ron Murrow, he is our financial advisor on the broadcast. We discuss the historic fall in oil prices. May I just remind you that these Arab and Islamic nations have come to power financially because of their selling of oil. Should that disappear, then that may well motivate them to make their strike against the Jewish state of Israel. They've been able to purchase weapons and munitions in order to line up to destroy the Jewish state. Without that oil money, it may motivate them to make that move earlier rather than later. And David James and I talked about Bible translations, and the concern was because a Danish Lutheran translation has left out Israel. That word Israel which cannot be found in their New Testament translation. That's replacement theology. Replacement theology says that the church has replaced God's plan for Israel. That is satanic, my dear friend. God has a plan for the Jewish people, his chosen people. It will be fulfilled. Well, everything I've told you today from these reports given to us by our broadcast partners is evidence, tangible evidence, that the next event, the rapture of the church, is about to happen. And having said that, there's nothing left for me to say, except let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Mm -hmm.